Welcome to the podcast where heavy industrial industries meet the venture capital ecosystem, interviewing both thought-leading investors and pioneering founders to better understand the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead for digital industrial innovation. Your host is Ty Finley, and this is the Heavy Hitters Podcast. Sujit Chan joins us today from my home turf in Austin, Texas. Sujit is the former senior vice president and CTO for Rockwell Automation, where his storied 21-year career had him play a major part in nearly every facet of the company, spanning technical leadership over IP and innovation development for their vast product offering suite, to global business development efforts, building critical strategic alliances and partnerships across several continents. Sujit is also an active public company board member with board member roles at FlowServe, Protolabs, and Vico, and he is active in the early stage VC ecosystem as well, serving as a venture partner for Exposition Ventures. He has also advised many influential public and private organizations focused on industrial innovation, including the National Institute for Standards and Technology, NIST, National Electrical Manufacturers Association, NEMA, First Robotics, and even represented the U.S. as the head of delegation for the nonprofit group Intelligent Manufacturing Systems, which is a premier worldwide consortium on manufacturing technology. Sajit, it is uh, truly an honor to have you on the show. Uh, for decades, you, you've been championing defining this podcast exact thesis to drive ahead industrial innovation. So I can't wait to dive in and welcome to the heavy hitters. Thank you, Ty. I'm delighted to uh, join the podcast and I'm looking forward to the discussion. All right. Well, let's jump in. I, I always give my short summary in the intros, but walk us through much more of that color commentary on your journey and, and what led you to becoming that SVP and CTO role within such a story, digital industrial innovator like Rockwell Automation. Well, you know, my journey with Rockwell Automation started in 2001. I was uh, with a dot-com startup and we had just completed a transaction when I got a call from the CEO at the time at Rockwell Automation, he said that um, he's looking for a CTO to work alongside him to transform Rockwell. What he had in mind was a pretty broad and big agenda. He wanted to take all the disparate systems that Rockwell had internally and bring them into a single source of truth. Think of this as rolling out an ERP system like SAP. He wanted to diversify the markets that Rockwell was, in, was, was participating in at the time. He wanted to expand Rockwell's geographic presence, especially outside of the US where Rockwell is very, very strong and become a technology leader in industrial automation. So in summary, what he was looking for is a leader to work with him to transform Rockwell from a company that produced 387,000 SKUs to a tech company. To me, this sounded like a tremendously exciting opportunity. So I took it on. We moved from California to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I joined Keith Nosport, the CEO at the time, to drive the transformation of Rockwell, which as you mentioned in the intro, included technical innovation, as well as uh, innovating the go-to-market approaches, building Rockwell's uh, partner network, and uh, expanding Rockwell's presence in the industrial space by adding more software content to what Rockwell did. If I were to re reflect on my 20 plus years uh, in the CTO role at Rockwell, 
I would say that what I valued the most were the trust of the CEO and the board, collaboration with a very talented team and highly dedicated employees at Rockwell Automation. And perhaps the most important thing were the great customers who were constantly challenging me on the speed of innovation. So all in all, it was a great ride. Yeah, that's to say the least. And talk about no pressure taking on a, a new role like that. And um, love to hear it. It does always come back to the people. And through the episode, we'll talk both technology as well as uh, go to market because they're equally important here. So can't wait to dig into all of these topics. So may, maybe um, just to help set the stage for our, for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit more about Rockwell, Rockwell Edemol? automation's history and its longstanding significance within this industrial ecosystem and how you now leverage that corporate experience, you know, coming out of the prior dot-com experience, both to serve on industrial public boards and, as we mentioned, early stage venture engagements um, that you're a part of with um, Expedition Ventures and others. We'd love to see how you've parlayed those lessons learned. Sure, I'll be happy to, Ty. Uh, so let's start with Rockwell Automation. Uh, Rockwell is... Um, roughly 125 years old. For a company to, to survive and thrive for this long, it takes commitment from every single employee to make the customers more successful every day. Rockwell has always focused on innovation that is relevant to its customer base. I think it's perhaps the best example of a customer first company. You know, this means keeping a good pulse on customer needs and creating the future jointly with customers. Just to ground us, I will share an example of how Rockwell co-innovates with customers. Two decades ago, Rockwell decided that industrial safety is a good business to get into. Today, Rockwell is the largest safety-related company in the industrial space, if you include Rockwell safety components and process safety. How did Rockwell get there? The foundational elements that Rockwell put in place for its safety business came from a collaborative development effort with General Motors. GM at the time was looking to improve employee safety in the GM plants. Rockwell approached GM worked very closely with the engineers at GM and developed and iterated on a safety solution that GM finally ultimately adopted. And that created Rockwell safety business that went way beyond just General Motors. So that's an example of how Rockwell, a customer-focused company, works with customers on innovation and creating the future jointly uh, with the customers. I think what will keep Rockwell thriving for the next 125 years are this customer-centric culture that exists in Rockwell, complemented with a deep domain knowledge of industries and automation needs, focus on industry-specific solutions, and we'll talk more about this in the podcast, and finally, a powerful ecosystem that provides lifecycle support of products and software. Because in the industrial space, the life cycle tends to be relatively long. For example, Rockwell products are designed to survive 25 to 30 years. That's a pretty long life cycle. So life cycle support is really, really important. 
I think finally, one other thing I noticed at Rockwell in my 21 years, in the past 21 years, is what Andy Grove of Intel said. If you recall, Andy Grove said, only the paranoid survive. There has always been a healthy paranoia at Rockwell about the speed of innovation to meet customer needs. So while at Rockwell, I learned many important lessons. Uh, the key ones are to understand the intersection between customer needs and technology, what it takes to succeed in digital transformation, and the importance of innovation in a strong ecosystem. So what I bring to the table on the various boards that I sit on is a deep understanding of the industrial markets, technology, business transformation, and customer needs. So that served me well in uh, working with both public companies as well as uh, private companies. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's translatable regardless of which stage company you're building and, and anyone is very fortunate to have you on their board or, and or cap table. And, and so with, with that set up, um, let's kick, let's kick the discussion off with the topic I have long wanted to put on a pedestal with this show specifically, and that's the industrial automation, hardware and software products that are truly running our global industrial controls infrastructure. And we, we had a lot of fun talking about this at our last coffee chat, but Le leveraging your decades of experience in the industrial operations world, including those 21 years at Rockwell, could you first walk us through your outlook on kind of that rough history of industrial software to help bring our audience up the curve and associated how this thing called the Programmable Logic Controller or PLC plays an absolutely critical role powering our global controls infrastructure. So that, that's kind of step one, just bringing us up the curve on that history. And then if I could ask for a little bit of a look ahead, We've actually seen a lot of focus in some in the venture community on advancing innovation in this ecosystem. Rockwell's been a big part of that. Um, would love for you to share where you think the innovation is still needed and what you're excited to see is that next chapter in industrial automation as we as we gain more attention. So we'd love to cover kind of the history and what you're looking at ahead. Perfect. So let's start with uh, industrial software. I like to think of industrial software in three layers or three levels. The first level is machine level or controller level software. Think of this as software that's used to program a PLC, program a robot controller, or any other machine. The level above that is referred to as supervisory control or sometimes called MES, manufacturing execution systems. Think of this level as schedule management, quality management, and other functions that sit above the machine layer. And the third layer, or the third level, is the ERP level. The first two levels, which also includes HMI, human machine uh, visualization, human machine interface, the first two levels are widely prevalent today. Most factories have implemented those two levels, whether it's through a SCADA system at, the le at level two or an MES system that exists today. I think the, the third level integration with the first two levels is where there's a lot of innovation that's needed. It's still nascent. In other words, integrating the ERP systems with manufacturing is an area where I think a lot of innovation will be needed. And Sujit, sorry to jump in. Would you would you call that that typical discussion we have of 
OT, operational technology environments, meeting IT, information technology exactly. environment, that kind of overlap. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So that's the convergence of mm -hmm. IT and OT. You're bringing in a lot of systems that IT manages for supply chain, for HR, for sales and customer management, along with integrating it with uh, what happens in manufacturing. Now, it's been like mixing oil and water because for many decades, the manufacturing folks don't really like to work with the IT folks because they tell them, hey, you don't understand our needs. We can't have a shutdown. You can't push software to manufacturing controllers and shut us down. So, so there's been a level of distrust. However, I would say in the last five to 10 years, this is changing dramatically. Agree. When I go to customers and I talk to OT folks, typically there's an IT person present as well. So that change, I think that train has left the station. There is now greater collaboration between IT and OT. There is still some tension there, and we'll talk more about the tension points and what kind of solutions and what kind of innovation is needed uh, a little bit later on. Um, so, so, so the ITOT convergence is creating a tremendous number of opportunities. Before we dive deeper into that topic, I also want to say that in industrial automation, it's an and between multiple technologies. What I mean by that is if you look at an industrial automation system, it's made up of components. Think of these as sensors, motors, actuators. It's made up of machines provided by machine builders or OEMs. It's made up of processes. This is how you run the factory and software. To be successful, there always has to be an end between all of these technologies. Now you can invent or you can innovate new sensors. You can innovate new machines. You can innovate new processes. And yes, you can innovate a lot of new software. But when they have to, but they have to come together to make an impact in manufacturing. So keep that thought. We'll come back to it. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about PLCs. Uh, PLCs are essentially industrially hardened computers that are designed to close discrete control loops. Think of these as on-off type of loops. They have evolved over the last decade or so into what are being called programmable automation controllers. So this means the PLC is not only doing pure discrete control, but it's also doing motion control, simple robotics control, safety, and process control. Rockwell was the first company to introduce a programmable automation controller. And this was uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And now programmable automation controllers are widely used in industrial automation. So finally, Ty, I want to get back to the question you asked about where innovation is needed. So as we drive convergence between IT and OT, clearly there are some tension points there. The connectivity is difficult in many cases. There's a lot of legacy. Uh, but what the manufacturing side is looking for is to optimize what they do. I call it optimizing the connected enterprise. 
So this would mean connecting, for example, the supply chain with production, figuring out what parts are needed for production and whether they're available, not just today, but also in the near future, and managing the supply chain jointly with production and customer demand. That's kind of the holy grail. Good solutions for optimizing this connectivity are difficult to come by. So this is one area where I think innovation could certainly help. While we are driving this innovation, it's really important to manage complexity and ease of use, because if the solution, with all this connectivity, things are getting more complex for people in the OT environment. So ease of use and uh, uh, ability to implement solutions faster is a huge need. You'll hear that over and over again. Another big opportunity is in regulatory compliance. Uh, unfortunately, regulations are growing, whether it's uh, regulations around food safety, uh, drug manufacturing safety, or sustainability, or security. They just seem to be exploding. Uh, a lot of OT folks are looking for solutions that they can implement for getting to regulatory compliance faster. Another ripe area for innovation, uh, if, you can if you can develop solutions that, that get regulatory compliance faster for, uh, uh, for a lot of companies. And finally, I just want to say one important uh, uh, element that, that, in, in, that is very much prevalent in the industrial space that all entrepreneurs should respect, and that is legacy. You have to respect the legacy. Uh, there's over $100 billion, at least, of installed running manufacturing systems with legacy controllers, legacy software. You can't ignore that. Uh, you have to think about these legacy systems have, as having very long life cycles, 30, 40 years, outdated software systems, outdated uh, user interfaces, yet they're still running. So the solution we develop has to work with the legacy that's out there. I think I've said a lot, so I'm going to stop there, Ty, and see if you have any questions. Uh, I'm just taking notes, like I'm sure hopefully all the founders out there are too, because I, I agree. And, you know, even on the regulatory side, right, all the executive orders we've seen with both the supply chain and, and some of our, our nation's infrastructure, like control systems, right, the Tampa Water Treatment Facility or the Colonial Pipeline, if you can make any of this more productive, secure, and sustainable, as as we like to rally around, uh, Sajid, again, I'm always following you, but I, I think it's gold that you're sharing with the audience. And, and agree on the last point very strongly, the domain experience and respecting the domain. These are very relationship-driven businesses. You have to understand how the environments work as is because they are mission-critical OT environments. There is not time for downtime or things of that nature. And, and you know, those manufacturing folks that maybe don't want to play ball with IT as much, there's some good reasons there too. So uh, exactly again, right. I'm just parroting what, what you said, Sujit, but lots of work ahead. And maybe um, what I'd love to take that technology foundation we just had passed in what's ahead. And I next want to drill down into advice you might have particularly around the go-to-market in this sector, which, as we both know, is just as critical to get right as the technology. Some would argue, it, you know, 
PLCs have been around. We always love to preach since 1969 with Dick Morley. And then you guys had the programmable automation controls since the 90s. So it's it's definitely technologies there. How do you apply it and how do you go to market with it? Um, I'll end my soapbox there. So with that setup, I wanted to call out that in Rockwell's eighth annual state of smart manufacturing report, which is published each year, I encourage the audience to check it out. It surveyed over seven or 1,400 global manufacturers among many interesting takeaways around business challenges facing manufacturers today. The study found that, number one, two times as many respondents as in the 2022 survey said they lack the technology to outpace the competition. And point number two, a third of manufacturers say they are hampered by technology paralysis which is defined as an inability to decide between solutions, which I, I think we could all appreciate. So given these seemingly contradictory data points out of the, the new report, how would you advise startups who are eager to work with and sell into large manufacturers to navigate these environments where there is a desire to innovate, but also honestly complex bureaucratic organizations, which are uh, which sometimes aren't properly resourced to evaluate some of these cutting edge technology vendors and sometimes even have a lack of bias uh, against you know their mentality on internal versus external. So go to market, how, how do we help them here, Sujit? So Ty, let, let's start with um, understanding why a lot of companies are in this analysis paralysis and uh, pilot purgatory mode where they're doing a lot of pilots and just cannot scale beyond a simple pilot. What's leading the confusion is a lot of noise in the software space. So if I'm sitting in a manufacturing environment, I have a lot of people knocking on my door. Large software companies such as Microsoft and Google, they claim to have OT solutions. Global system integrators such as Accenture and Deloitte, they have significantly ramped up their presence in the OT space. And incumbents such as Rockwell Automation, Siemens, and Schneider are investing heavily in software. To this, you add perhaps hundreds of startups, and you can now see why industrial companies are caught in a kind of a stalemate. So what does it take to get around it? My advice to startups in this space is to become aware of the ecosystem that a company has and find a way to fit into a, into a solution with a very clear line of sight on business value. So let's do a little bit of uh, thinking on this, uh, uh, on this topic. Let's say you are the VP of manufacturing for a pharmaceutical company and your company is rapidly ramping up production of large molecule biologics. Your pain points are getting certification faster, meeting the quota for daily, daily production, and optimizing production. You are looking for solutions that provide clear value and also align with your internal IT standards. I walk into your office as the founder of a highly innovative machine learning software company. I will most likely not get any interest from you because of several reasons. One, you don't have any software engineers who can work with my ML software to get any value from it because there are no spare software engineers sitting around in an OT environment. 
And if my machine learning software is not integrated into a turnkey solution that directly addresses one of your pain points, you have no interest in talking to me. So perhaps I might do a pilot with the technology team, but it's going to stay there. So the key point here is in your go-to-market, you have to focus on relevant solutions and business value that appeals to the OT environment. Uh, the industry focus and knowledge, you mentioned domain knowledge. That's important to open doors. Finally, you know, partners, uh, companies you align with can be really important for market access and providing broader solutions because that's what the customer is looking for. They're not looking for a tool or a widget or an app that stand alone, but they're looking for a solution that solves their business problem. Because when you look at how corporate environments work, if I'm the VP of manufacturing, I have a budget for 2023. In that budget, it's further aligned or assigned to various drivers that I have, regulatory compliance, higher productivity, whatever. So I may have two or three top pain points. I go to my boss, I negotiate with my boss on a budget, and I assign the budget in those buckets. If you come to me without addressing my pain points and telling and tell me that you have the greatest tool, I would have no interest in it. So here's this is where I think uh, uh, we need to do a better job of aligning with the ecosystem, aligning with the business value, and then going to customers with the right business value proposition. Absolutely. And, and maybe one particular, I get a lot of feedback on around ecosystem and partnerships, because I'm 100% with you. These these industries, at some point in your scaling journey, you are going to need to be a good actor in the ecosystem and find good partners. The question is how early or when is the right time, Sujit? So I'm curious, you know, using this alphabet soup, at least from the venture perspective, seed, A, B, is there a certain maturity point where, hey, maybe you've got those, um, you know, to use the innovator's dilemma um, curve, you've had those early adopters that are just willing to take a risk. Maybe it's a mid-market manufacturer. But, but what time when your scaling journey starts, do you have to start really hardening those partnerships? Do, do you have any good points of entry for that type of muscle within these startups? I think it's a great question. Uh, I think it depends on what you're bringing to the table. Let's say it's an innovative sensor or instrument that you are innovating, that you've come up with. For that to be accepted in the industrial space, you need to show what it can do. It's, if it's a vibration monitor, it needs to be integrated with software that predicts the breakdown of a pump. And it needs to be proven before OT will deploy it. Uh, so, so having that level of uh, integration would be important if you're coming up with an innovative sensor. If it's a software app, it needs to be part of a broader solution that highlights the business value. So how do you get to business value that you want to deliver, uh, given what you're working on, uh, will dictate which partners to engage with. And then you can prioritize. Phase one, I'm going to engage with just one company. Phase two, I'll expand it to three or four companies because my solution will expand further. So you kind of have to build that based on uh, how you want to package the business value that you're delivering. 
all makes sense. And again, I hope our audience is taking notes. This is uh, this is very tactical and, and topical for a lot of my portfolio companies right now as is. So um, what I'd like to do now is move us forward. Um, to say the least, there is a national domestic U.S. conversation going on about our manufacturing capabilities. Not to say it's a new discussion at all, uh, which we've covered on this podcast, but having advised many influential public and private organizations focus on industrial innovation, and we we mentioned them earlier, NIST, NEMA, uh, First Robotics, and then even the Global Consortium Intelligent Manufacturing Systems, and and I'm just listing a few. I, I encourage our listeners to look your background up. You you have clearly been a part of this significant domestic conversation on the state of U.S. manufacturing and where we need to go, honestly, as a country to stay competitive on the global stage. So, uh, macro, micro here. What is your macro assessment of the U.S.'s standing in advanced manufacturing innovation today? And what do we need to do to, to stay competitive going forward? And then more micro aligned to technology in some of this discussion. When it comes to industrial software in particular, where is the U.S. out in front currently? And what do you think our nation needs to do to invest to keep up uh, with China, honestly, and some of the other countries uh, from a technology perspective, if we could we could cover macro and micro there? Sure, I'd be happy to. So historically, manufacturing tends what used to be high volume production with a significant manual content. So think 15, 20 years ago, making cars, a lot of people, a few machines, high manual content and high volume production. I think in the last two decades, two decades or more, rapid globalization and labor arbitration manufacturing overseas to locations such as China and India. We've all noted this, uh, this major trend. But then let's look at the future of manufacturing. Where is manufacturing going long-term? I think the future of manufacturing is intelligent, hyper-connected, and highly automated. In other words, the, the, the technology infrastructure underneath automation is going to change dramatically to allow for higher connectivity between OT and IT and enable functions that are not realized today. They're also changing customer demands for greater customization. Think of this as personalized medicine. Uh, that will require manufacturing to move closer to home. So if, if I need a certain dosage of a certain pill and I want it tomorrow, I can't wait for that pill to be produced in India and shipped to me. So it has to be close to home. Post COVID, a lot of companies are working on uh, redoing their supply chains. I think we'll see more regionalization of supply chains and manufacturing. Today, the US has a clear leadership in enterprise software. I think we need to invest significantly more in public-private partnerships to accelerate solutions for advanced manufacturing in the industry sector. If you look at what other countries like China are doing, They have developed multi-year plans, roadmaps, and investments in manufacturing. Uh, If you look at China, they have uh, a plan that's called China 2025. It calls for significant investment in manufacturing to maintain China as the world leader. 
So what are we doing in the US? I think we are doing a few right things. We have programs such as the National Network for National Network of Manufacturing Institutes and the CHIPS Act, which I think are steps in the right direction. But in summary, I think what we need to do is to significantly ramp up public-private partnerships and investments in manufacturing with particular focus on developing new software and new processes to, to change how manufacturing takes place today. I think the timing is right because of the changes and transformations that are occurring in manufacturing. Think of these as automotive sector shifting to EVs, pharmaceuticals shifting to uh, bio-based medicines and personalized medicine. These are major changes. Uh, the whole manufacturing process processes have to be rethought when, when you make these types of changes. So the opportunity couldn't be any better for innovation. Uh, I'm really excited about what startups and innovators can do in this space. Yeah, and, and I'm so with you. I think we've referenced the China manufacturing or made in China 2025 effort. And right, we, we took a big public-private partnership approach, right? Made in China 2025 is like the government is going to subsidize millions and millions of dollars to do it one way or another. And so we, we with our Manufacturing USA efforts, the National Network of Manufacturing Institutes, and then we're even seeing some new efforts. Um, Jeff Wilkie, former number two at Amazon, he now has Rebuild Manufacturing up in Boston. Uh, Eric Schmidt actually launched his new nonprofit special competitive studies project that has an advanced manufacturing arm. That kind of ecosystem and to your point, public-private partnership here in the States, we, we have to keep going because I'm with you. My, my rallying cry is hyper-local, hyper-custom, hyper-now is, uh, is the demand profile I think we're, we're seeing. And you have to have more regionalized, localized manufacturing to do that. So our work is cut out for us. Sajit? Um, well, maybe finally with the podcast, we always love to bring this discussion back to those folks actually in the arena, those founders who are building and what words of wisdom you might have for them that, uh, who are thinking about launching new digital industrial efforts, um, that you come across, or maybe as a venture partner at Expedition Ventures, you're, you're, you're helping advise. Uh, we love to split it between any keys to success as they start off or common pitfall challenges to avoid as they enter the discussion. So let's start out with, um, keys to uh, success of an early stage company. When I'm looking at an early stage company, what I would like to hear is a clear articulation of the business value proposition for the customer. Not the technology, not the innovation, but I wanna know what does it do for the customer? Uh, you have to put yourself in the shoes of a manufacturing VP to, to uh, really come up with the right set of value propositions. So it's important to think through that. You know, it's it's perfectly fine to start with innovative technology. That's where a lot of startups begin, but it has to quickly transform itself into what does it do for my customer? Can I quantify it? And it doesn't have to be by itself. Rarely a startup's technology can transform what goes on at a customer site by itself. It needs to be integrated into an overall solution as we discussed in the past. Uh, the common pitfalls to avoid. First, avoid selling generic software apps that are not integrated into a solution, especially if you're selling into, into the OT environment. IT, that may still be okay because IT has people who understand software, can write software, 
integrate your particular app with the rest of their infrastructure. Ignoring legacy is a mistake. Ignoring legacy and install base is a mistake. A good understanding of what a customer may have in terms of install base and legacy is important because they're not going to abandon legacy and install base. There's no rip and replace in manufacturing. I think ignoring the ecosystem is also uh, a pitfall because manufacturing is 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 really a collaboration between multiple suppliers all coming together to provide a solution. It's not one company that provides a complete solution. No matter how great Rockwell Automation is, Rockwell Automation cannot by itself provide everything a manufacturing customer needs. Rockwell in its uh, partner network program has over 120 companies that it partners with to create a more integrated solution. So no one company can do it alone. I think the ecosystem is, is, is extremely important. And finally, I would uh, focus on hiring advisors who have domain knowledge in manufacturing. That's, that's going to be really critical to success. Uh, ecosystem and advisors, uh, par for the course. Again, Sujit, million thanks for coming on here and helping us build ecosystem. Uh, so par for the course, trying to do our part. And so maybe here, last part, we always love to wrap up the pod with a little uh, section we call quick hitters, a little Q&A. So if you're ready, we'll jump in. Sure. All right. What is the number one thing you're looking for when you evaluate a founder within this ecosystem? So the number one thing I look for is passion and clear articulation of business value. I like it. Consistent throughout on the value prop. Uh, what is one resource? Uh, it could be book, pod podcast, blog, whatever you'd recommend for audience to follow in this ecosystem and help build it. Uh, so here, I'm not going to give you one, but I'll give you a couple of options, All depending right. on what, what you're working on. For example, if it's software, uh, companies such as Microsoft and Rockwell do have blogs and they feature customer use cases in many of these blogs. Those can be insightful and helpful. If you're looking for reports that, um, give you an insight into the software market, the industrial software market. Gartner would be another source, or there's a whole bunch of other industrial analysts who publish reports on uh, the industrial software market, how it's segmented and how to play in it. So, so there are multiple sources of information that you can tap into to get a pulse on uh, the needs in the industrial space and how other companies and other players are thinking about it. Absolutely. have to give a shout out uh, to Tom Davis over at Microsoft for Startups. He, he sold his industrial IoT company before joining that group and now is putting out some great resources. So agree. You can find a lot of good stuff online. Um, one person who should be on the podcast to help us uh, continue the rallying cry here. Well, I think it would be fun to have a manufacturing VP who is in the hot seat mm -hmm. for uh, driving production for, a, for a, let's say, mid to large, large company on the podcast because they will articulate very clearly what their pain points are. That's a great point. Yeah. Usually the, those are the people willing to maybe even bet a little bit of their career to to take some risk on that technology. It, usually the buck stops there. So I've nice. got my challenge set out. I will do it. Uh, and then finally, Sajit, uh, best way for folks to reach out to you after the show. I think the best way is uh, through LinkedIn and uh, any I'm on LinkedIn and anyone can reach out to me on LinkedIn, and I'll be very happy to connect. 
Awesome. Well, uh, to say the least, a, a storied career here, and uh, it feels like we're we're making some significant momentum and have a lot to work on together as we push ahead this digital industrial agenda, Sujit. So appreciate you making a little time and uh, look forward to having you on again. My pleasure, and thank you for the opportunity, Ty.